0: Welcome to Tech Junior. Hey everyone, it's Eddie. We have another great show for you today. Today, we're talking to Jason Phillips about his career in coding, um, how he taught himself, and his career path. Uh, If you'd like to support the show, please visit us at techjunior.dev. You can subscribe to our newsletter. Um, click the support button and uh, subscribe to our Patreon or buy some swag. Uh, you can tweet us at Tech Junior Podcast. Anything you could do to support the show is greatly appreciated. And let's get into it.
1: Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick Junior. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer, and I have with me as always Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie. I'm a front end developer. And today we've got a special guest. We've got Jason Phillips. Uh, Jason, if you could introduce yourself.
2: Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for uh, having me here, uh, Lee and Edwin. Uh, Jason Phillips, I'm the Director of Engineering for Online Platforms at Trilogy Education Services. Uh, we are a part of 2U, uh, where we build online learning platforms for our students.
1: Cool. So uh, maybe more colloquially, people would know um, Trilogy as a code boot camp. Um, so Eddie and I both went through a, a Trilogy program. Um, mm-hmm. We'd had great success with it. Uh, Jason, um, that intro was like super professional, so I I applaud you for that. (laughs) That was, that was impressive. Um, (laughs) so like, what do you, uh, what do you do like day to day? Do you do instruction or do you do, do, do like curriculum stuff or do you do both?
2: Yeah. So, um, day to day, well, I actually technically have two jobs with Trilogy. Um, and this is kind of where my journey began with Trilogy. I started out as a web dev bootcamp instructor, uh, with UC Berkeley, uh, through Trilogy And that was pretty great. And from there, I got a chance to kind of jump in and work on the platforms we use to manage uh, the learning experience for students and instructors. And so now my focus is a lot more on grooming and mentoring the engineers on our teams who are building those platforms. And I'm kind of now one level up thinking about the direction of our platforms, the health and the type of applications we want to put in our ecosystem, and just ensuring that we're supporting our SSMs or our student our uh, support staff, our career staff, our instructors, and our students, ultimately. So it's a, it's a lot of strategy these days, a little less tech, but <laughs> <I love it. laughs> still a bit hands-on with, uh, with the tech leads that I mentor in terms of um, creating some proof of concepts and just kind of thinking, like, where do we want this to go, which is pretty awesome, um, just kind of being able to use what I learned in the classroom to also try to figure out how can we best serve students 12, 18, 24 months out with our platforms
1: awesome cool so we didn't bring you on to grill you about um trilogy and and we're for boot camp (laughs) but uh (laughs) can you tell us um like how you got your start in the industry and like how you
2: got into coding and and all that good stuff uh yeah it's it's funny i kind of backed my way into this industry uh and i say that a lot because uh so when i went to college i was originally a math computer science dual major uh then i hit cal three and then after the third time I took Calculus 3, I got the <laughs> best C-plus I've ever earned in my life and promptly dropped computer science and math as a dual major like the following semester. Uh, awesome. and, and kind of actually wanted to go more into uh, 3D animation and art, which is originally what I wanted to go to school for. Um, and then eventually along the way, I took a break from school. Um, and was on the road as a DJ and a a tour liaison for Scratch DJ Academy, where I was also uh, in the marketing department. And it was actually while I was there that I got my start writing out HTML emails and managing, helping to manage our e-commerce platform for like selling our turntables and and our uh, curriculum. And eventually I went back to school. It got a bit harder in terms of my uh, requirements and It got a bit easier in terms of getting more and more freelance gigs. And that's how I kind of started building my career in engineering. Um, So, yeah, kind of ironic that I had to drop computer science to learn how to love code.
1: I really don't think that it's that odd at all. Um, I had a similar experience in college. It wasn't um, Calc 3 that got me. It was like the class after that. Um, But I started doing intro to CS classes at university And they were teaching me, like, Java and binary and hexadecimal and stuff. And it's pretty miserable to learn that stuff whenever you're wanting to build software. Um, It's very theoretical. It's a lot of math. Uh, It's just not very exciting to somebody that's, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and wanting to jump into the industry. So um, that that really doesn't surprise me that you kind of had to make a big loop and come back to coding. Um, Did you actually take any
2: coding courses when you were in college? Uh, So it took... So, and that also jumps into kind of where engineering is today versus where it was then. Um, so this was 1998, 1998, 1999. So I took a few Java courses, um, enough that I had to uh, write our code. We had to print our code out to submit it to get graded. So that wow. was a thing. Uh, yeah. Plenty of trees were harmed in the making of my coursework, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, and I was also submitting my code on floppy disk. And so, like, there was also just the tension oh, that's awesome of delivering code that you don't have today. Right. Like today, it's hey, here's my GitHub link. Like you go about the process of code to submit code, uh, which we didn't have then. Uh, also, our Internet programming course was Java applets.
1: Yeah. Okay. Hmm.
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> Can you explain to the audience
1: what a Java applet is for the uh, the young folks in the crowd?
2: Yeah. So, you know. You know, when they when people have the whole parable, back in my day, we walked up the hill five miles to go to, go to school. That's kind of what programming for the web was then. Uh, Java was one of the first write-once, run-anywhere-type platforms. And so you had a runtime for Java that ran inside your browser and then would run, uh, hopefully safe, compiled Java programs. Uh, we learned over time that, one, it was very resource-intensive, especially when you consider back then. If you had 128 megs of ram you were killing it (laughs) and two there was some security concerns there and flash kind of supplanted java um but when i was in university and we had our internet programming course flash had not yet supplanted java so we had to learn java programming for the browser Uh, and that wasn't very creative uh i guess in the words of marie kondo it didn't spark joy so (laughs) it wasn't my favorite class at all
1: (laughs) Yeah, Java was kind of sold back then as um, ooh, write once, run anywhere. And uh, it didn't really pan out that way <laughs> in the end. Um, I think JavaScript is, has kind of become that write once, run anywhere language uh, nowadays, believe it or not.
2: Yeah, and I think, I think there's a lot of lessons, though, that we could learn in the JavaScript community in general that Java figured out. right? like the Java community went away, but then it came back with a storm. And Java is still a huge um, ecosystem for building services and a bunch of backend code. And I think as the JavaScript ecosystem continues to mature and both become more complex, but also more versatile, we'll have to remember not to repeat some of the missteps that Flash and Java and other browser right once run anywhere technologies did. Um, and we almost ran into some of those, you know, when we had Firefox mobile and WebOS, which are great ideas, but it was also like, uh, maybe a couple years too early. JavaScript wasn't quite cri- quite ready yet to be running on devices that way. Um, but um, yeah, I think JavaScript is really probably the closest we'll ever get to fulfilling that pr- that premise.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a huge fan of JavaScript. If anybody out there <laughs> is curious. Um, <laughs> so, getting back to your uh, to your upbringing and like your path to development. Um, how did you actually learn to code uh, if you were like touring as a DJ and all this other crazy stuff?
2: Uh, so, I, like I said, uh, a lot of trees were harmed in the making of my coursework. There was also a lot of trees, unfortunately, harmed in the making of my career. Uh, I spent tons of time in Barnes and Noble's, uh, Borders, any bookstore that had a computer book section. Um, for the audience, Uh, This is 2001, 2002, 2003. Outside of maybe three websites like WebMonkey and DynamicDrive.com, there was not the wealth of information that there is today on different types of programming. Uh, It was like pretty much in its very beginning. Uh, So I would just go to Barnes & Noble, pull like five, six books on a topic and pick the two or three that I felt like best spoke to how I learned or just I clicked with. Buy those put those in my bag and then the three or four that I didn't buy, I would just study those until closing time and then go home and study more on the books that I actually bought. And so I just had this kind of cycle of building my library and also using Barnes and Nobles and other bookstores as a library. Um, So when I went to one job and it was like, Hey, we use PHP to run our content management system I was like, all right, cool. Well, I can convince you that I at least know what I'm doing in PHP. And then when it comes to the actual things I'll need to know for the job, I'll just learn while I'm there. And it's kind of how I applied um, the learning and in, in the, in the um, kind of way I went about trying to find knowledge in with books was let me know enough to get the next job and then let me soak up everything about that job once I got it. Then use other tools to kind of help sharpen it and then go find the next gig. And it's kind of what my first, I'd say, five or six years were, were like.
1: Cool. Yeah. So I, I read on your uh, blog that you described this as the University of Barnes and Noble.
2: <laughs> yeah, I am a card carrying because I still have my membership card. Uh, they, <laughs> they still get my twenty five dollars a year and I still get those discounts. Uh, but yeah,
3: are they still around?
2: Yeah. Still Barnes, Barnes and, and Noble is definitely still
3: around. Is it? Oh, OK.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, uh, Waters is gone, right? Very
2: gone. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. I think Books a Million is on their way out, too. OK. Not only is Borders gone, what's opening in their place are Amazon bookstores, which is wildly hilarious. (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) It's like the uh, snake eating itself right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, going back to Java and its resurgence, right? It's like the bookstore is gone. The bookstore is back. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I did jokingly refer to Noble as like my schooling because of how much. Not only that I learned there via books, uh, but also kind of that was one of the first places where I found community in development. It was was not uncommon for me to be somewhere in New York City like Union Square and you get the cross-section of NYU students and design school students and new school students and engineers who work there and we're all in the same aisle looking at programming books. So it's like one of the first times where I just had a random, hey, oh, you're looking at that book too? Cool, what do you do? Just kind of starting to build that network um, so yeah, Barnes and Noble for me was kind of like a mini university experience for, That's I'd cool. say at least three, four years.
1: I, uh, I definitely have spent at least 10, 20, 30 hours poring over like Head First Java, which was, uh, kind of like a Java for dummies kind of book, uh, from way back when. But, um, yeah, it's funny that you say that because whenever I look back at the time that I was in university, which was like 2005, Um, YouTube had just come out like around that time. And uh, you just didn't have all these resources to learn this stuff. Like today in in 2020, I can jump on YouTube and like literally watch somebody doing the thing that I want to learn how to do. And that just didn't exist back then. Um, You had to pay like money and like show up somewhere and be face to face with somebody for them to show you that there was certainly like pockets of uh, websites on the internet that would like teach you certain skills and had like information, but you really had to hunt for it or like get a tip from a friend or something. And today it's just like, there's an overload of information. It's, there's like a deluge. It's almost too much to parse at this point.
2: Yeah. It's, um, there, there definitely was like the top five. There was like the dynamic drive. Um, there was web monkey. Um, Wired.com used to like was was still a technology publication, but they would talk about like the Web and Web 2.0 and maybe a couple other sites. Um, But it's really also interesting that today, Twitch and YouTube are these popular platforms for learning. And it's so much content uh, from the communities because around that time, the precursor to Twitch, Justin.TV in 12 seconds. And uh, (laughs) there was another one that started with the U. I always forget it. But they all were starting around that time. Right. And then now, look, here we are 15 years later, and they're kind of leading the charge for opening up the information that we didn't have to even we didn't have available to be able to build those things, period, for free. Um, When you think about things like .NET, uh, a lot of those languages were strictly hidden behind these uh, learning programs and getting your MCSE or some sort of Microsoft certification um, or getting a PHP Zen certification a lot of these tools were also closed sourced, right? So PHP was open source, but Zend wasn't quite then, or it was like you know there was like the Zend uh, open source part, and then it was like the commercial engine for running the language. And so you, you just ended up in a place where you learned very much by proximity. If you happened to uh, like be on the job or be at school somewhere where folks were doing the stuff you were doing, and finding. Kind of communities and pockets and rabbit holes on the web, where nowadays, uh, those rabbit holes and pockets for programming are so prevalent, it's like they're not even niche anymore. It's it's probably more commonplace to find something about programming than like you would about something about sports or something about politics, uh, which is amazing to see. Like I'm, I'm actually all for that. Like I'm, I, I strongly wish we had that. <laughs> 15 years ago, but it's also a reason why I teach is that, you know, I don't think we I don't think I have to participate in being a gatekeeper and making it as hard as it was for me to have this career. Like there's plenty of problems for us to solve out there. And I just want to help kind of, you know, help people jump into careers that help them do that the way they want to, whether it's design, development, uh, data, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think if well, you went went through that period of time where it was like you had to really hunt for information. You kind of really appreciate like the availability of it now and also the amount of support that there is. Um, I think that user groups have been around for a long time, like your local C sharp or .NET user group or whatever. And then like meetups have kind of taken that and put it on steroids. And now you've got like meetups for everything, um, including, you know, technology and development. So, uh, those resources are amazing and very, very helpful. So, um, it's just really, it's a great time to be a developer, long story short.
3: Yeah, just to add to this whole, like, getting information thing back in the day, I remember um, going on eBay and buying DVDs on HTML and CSS. This is amazing. <laughs> Tell me <Yeah>. more. <laughs> Some guy had a series. They were, they were, like, 15 bucks a piece. And um, I just, they were really boring, <laughs> so, which is why I never, like, really learned them uh, until I got to like the, the boot camp. Uh, but
1: yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a way I try to learn. Uh, I did the book thing too, but I remember as a kid, like if I wanted to learn about a subject, like when my mom went shopping and we happened to go by a bookstore, like run in there and go to the, uh, like the reference section and find like the dummy's book on whatever it was that was like interesting to me. So like, oh, Web Design for Dummies and like flip through it and try and read in like 10 minutes as much as I could about whatever subject I was after.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I remember uh, I think one of the first books I bought was probably one of the worst books I ever bought. And Edwin, your (laughs) DVD story just brought that out for me, it was the HTML4 (laughs) Anthology. I don't know what I thought the word anthology meant when I saw the book, (laughs) but when I opened the book, it was not what I thought it was going to be. It was literally a thousand pages on like the HTML4 spec in every single, like
1: I should have kept that book.
2: Um, If, if for anything, just the sheer size alone was uh, impressive, but the content was so dense and so like, that's something we would go on like Mozilla developer network today to look at, right? If we wanted to actually see the spec but no, this was like an actual that's encyclopedia insane. style book <laughs> with everything. And yeah, I remember coming home and looking at the book and going, okay, this is, this is useless. Why did I do this?
1: <laughs> and eventually I, think, I got um, rid
2: of the book because it was hard to move from house to house. Cause it was also that heavy.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a spider killer right there. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I think we've, we've learned a lot of lessons like, this availability of like YouTube and and whatnot boot camps and and that sort of thing have kind of put those people at the forefront of like finding out what works and what doesn't as far as learning. Whereas like way back when, if you wanted to become a web uh, developer, maybe you would go to college and take an HTML course and you just sit there and learn like a thousand tags and sit for like four months and just do that. And I think that really turned a lot of people off from coding. Um, so nowadays, to be able to jump into a boot camp or get on YouTube and watch like Brad Traversy show you how to build a website in real time um, is just amazing. Just mind blowing.
2: Yeah. And also yeah. the tools that we even had were different then. Right. Like you had the uh, the notepad brigade. Right. Oh, no, you have to code everything in notepad by hand. No idea. No reference I I mean, I I did it too. like it was it it was the thing, right? Like it was what you did. Um, And then you had Eclipse, which was great for Java, but not really for much else. Um, And then if you wanted to strictly worry about web, your only other option was Dreamweaver for a long time. And as if you could actually pay the 89 or 119. I'm not going to talk about alternate means. We're going to keep everything on the... I was just
3: going to say something about that. I mean... Eddie, you pirate. uh, No, no, not at all.
2: (laughs) You know, uh, once I was able to afford it, I did buy it. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) I mean, I pay for it now. I mean, I don't
3: use it, but, you know... uh, They're still coming for you, Eddie. The WCC, yeah. Uh, Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Continue. I'm sorry.
2: Uh, No, no worries. But, like, we had that whole thing. and It was like, all right, cool. And every, you know, I remember. Uh, I used to try and study like the view source on sites because I was like, well, there's no other way for me to learn or or put into practice the stuff that Pre- I'm reading about tools. in these books. Oh, I I keep forgetting that there were never dev tools back then. <laughs> Man, <laughs> yeah. the web was an interesting place. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just remember always seeing this mm as a as a precursor to like all these different methods and functions. And then years later, I would find out that that's because people were using the auto generated drop down from Dreamweaver (laughs) or some other plugin that auto generated code. And so a bit of that for me was also when those things were buggy, I was like, all right, well, I got to figure out what's actually happening here. I can't keep freelancing and doing these projects and using things I don't understand. So it required me kind of dig into them. And that was kind of like another way I learned. But now our tools are much I think they're much more evolved for both learning and for doing. Right, like you have the VS codes, the atoms, the sublimes of the world where you have the assistance that helps you learn, but also the assistance that helps you be productive. And you have this crazy amount of contributions and community that's releasing all these different plugins. So I think even just the tooling that we had um, then versus now, like now I think there's so much more community but and the tooling is so much different that there's also just a a different accessible way to get a lot of that information.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Um, it's just, like I said, it's never been a better time to, to become a developer. Yeah. Um, circling back to, uh, to your career. Um, I know we're, we're a bunch of old guys talking about old stuff, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of had an unconventional path to, um, becoming a developer. Do you feel like that was a weakness or a strength, like versus somebody that, you know, actually stomached through an entire
2: CS curriculum at a, at a college or university? Uh, I think for me, it was a mix. Uh, so I think in the beginning, it was a strength in that um, a lot of my initial development in my career was all geared towards web development and not necessarily around full on systems engineering or, or doing something that kind of delved more into theoretical. So it allowed me to kind of learn a lot on the job, but also deliver for the jobs I I was receiving and grow in that realm. Um, I think there was sometimes as the web was kind of becoming the thing and, you know, Web 2.0 and Gradients Galore and MySpace was like the top social network (laughs) and Dig.com was still around. Like in that era. We call that the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the good old days. Like (laughs) in that era, you know, there was a mix of, you know, this new website thing and a lot of what you were learning in university, you hadn't really caught up to that yet because it was so new. Uh, when you when you think about, yeah, the Web has been around for, you know, at that point was around for already around 20 or some, 20 or so years. But the way we were delivering things on the Web and building things on the Web was still very new. Um, I think it became a bit more of a challenge. As I matured as a developer and started doing more engineering-based work of like building systems and designing technical architectures end-to-end because uh, I started coming across some of the topics that maybe I hadn't had a lot of theoretical or kind of academic experience with that actually was applying to the role. I was like, oh well, graph database theory. Who knew that actually would pop up in my career 10 years after I started, <laughs> right? And so um, I definitely had my challenges there. And I think the uh, some other challenges there were um, depending on the type of role I was applying for. Right. Um, you know, nowadays we talk a lot about how some places have boot camp bias, unfortunately, um, which is also pretty ironic considering that a lot of those same companies uh, were founded by engineers who dropped out of school. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> how does that work? But, you know, I definitely experienced my own version of that uh, at times because folks like, Hey, are you going to finish your degree? Are you going to finish your schooling? And it's like, is the act- is what I actually learned the important part or just that I have the piece of paper and the letters behind my name? Um, so that was definitely uh, something I had to kind of maneuver through. Um, but overall, I do think that even that part of my journey and just the way that I felt like for me, I learned helped a lot um especially when i was in advertising of just you know relating to clients or whoever i was building for um and it, uh, it kind of helped me not be too technical for people when it was like all right cool jason you have this challenge and this solution now go tell it to the business person who does not care about recursive functions right so um, <laughs> i think it did help a lot for me in in that regard
1: yeah i can definitely get behind that um it's There's a big space, I think, popping up where we're realizing that you can't just be like an egghead that only talks in technology jargon. Um, Businesses need to, you know, do business things, talk to clients, you know, talk to managers, talk to people outside of tech. And if you can be a technical person that can be that communicator and, and break things down, you know, not only is that good for teaching others, but also for, you know, Communicating business requirements and, and that sort of thing. So um having that mixed background is is definitely something that you can leverage as a strength and not just like look at, you know, oh man, I never finished my degree. Um uh, I'm not a computer science person and, and kind of let that weigh you down. Like there's a lot of um experience there that can be leveraged as a strength.
2: Yeah, and I think um, you know, it's really more it should really be more so about how can I take those things that are my strengths because of the different way that I got into this career path and how can those strengths help me learn some of the things that I that's just not a strength for me yet it doesn't even have to be a weakness right like uh, it, whether it's not whether it's a strength or not it doesn't have to be the super negative that you're missing a skill or some topical uh information because you can always find it and then strengthen that part as you go and if you don't properly utilize or lean on your strengths, it makes it a bit harder for you to actually get into those positions to learn those things.
1: Yeah. Um, on that note, uh, since you made such an awesome segue, uh, mm-hmm. talking about like building your career up and like intentionally um, architecting your path as a developer, uh, h- how do you do that? Or what, what are your opinions on how somebody that's maybe just starting their career should look ahead and kind of plan out where they want to go?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is um, understanding that, especially in this field, um, yes, there's benefits to staying in one place and growing, but it's also commonplace for people to bounce around from firm to firm, right, or from um, industry to industry even, Uh, especially as uh, this layer of tech that powers all these industries are now enabling this kind of cross-industry, cross- um, Cross job um, approach to you being able to apply what you learned in finance into healthcare and other things. Um, So, I think the first thing is always to kind of check in with yourself every year. Um, I like to say that every 12 months, you should check in and figure out okay, what have I learned in the last 12 months? Um, Figure out what it is that uh, in a year that you feel like you want to learn or get stronger at, and how can your current role help you get there? Uh, For some people, Unfortunately, they end up environments where maybe their current role won't give them that opportunity. And that's okay, right? Like you can find that opportunity elsewhere. It doesn't mean that that opportunity was a failure. It just means that you might have come at the end of your growth curve there. Um, And so for me, it became uh, so I was at an ad agency in New York for about four and a half years Uh, and about a year in uh, one of my favorite managers of all time. I always say that he saved my career as a developer. Um, I kind of transferred into his group and it was the first time I got to build end-to-end software end-to-end. And it was at that point that I started to realize, okay, I want to get stronger at things like Ruby on Rails and learning what, what this model view controller thing is. Um, I've got a decent background in object-oriented programming. And so I set out using our projects and also having uh, my manager empower me to learn those topics. And then when I got to the end of my time there, I wanted to jump into an opportunity where I got to be completely full stack. I wanted the challenge of building something end to end, which in my mind meant I had to build the server environment. Uh, I had to then build the back end and then build the front end Uh, because, you know, AWS was just becoming a thing at this point. (laughs) And, you know, earlier in my career, we were I had to manage servers like you got a VPS or virtual private server and you set it up yourself and you ran it. And so for me, it was I wanted to always get stronger at the entire delivery system. Um, I also wanted to stay far away from management uh, because at the time I convinced myself I didn't like dealing with people, (laughs) which was really just me saying I'm scared of that growth pattern um, or maybe I wasn't ready for it just yet. But that's what I started to do. So when I went to uh, the next job after that, I was like, all right, cool. New place, new environment. Um, I've got this Rails background our team does a lot of Python and Java, and we're full stack. I'm going to take this opportunity to learn what it means to build scalable services now. And so I went now from beyond from going from building an MVC application to now building scalable web services, to then piloting a graph database uh, based content management system. And so every year when I checked in with myself at that job, it was okay, I'm still learning. And I'm learning the thing I want to build next. That's Allowing me, one, to have fun, but two, continue to grow. And then at that point, I got an opportunity to come out here to the Bay and work for Apple. And that might have been the first time where I just went, oh, well, the Bay Area is my goal. Uh, And Hard to say no to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, I I wanted to live in the Bay well before I actually was established as an engineer. I just loved the Bay Area from the first time I came out here. Um, And so you know, even at that point, the decision tree was like, all right, cool. Stay with the current company where I have a great environment. I believe in the mission. Uh, It's education based or take this jump to this location that I've always wanted to live in. And also happens to be like the epicenter of a lot of movement in this industry. And so I went there. And at that point, uh, I was working at Apple. That's when I became a team lead. And I realized that my next goal was I went to get stronger at leadership and becoming a manager. Uh, so then every opportunity I took after that had to, for me, help me polish up a leadership area or a management area that I felt like I was lacking in. Um, and whenever I felt like I either didn't have that opportunity or I needed to go somewhere else to find an opportunity, that became what was number one to me when I looked for my next job. So this notion of like intentional career development, it doesn't have to be that you map out your entire career 20 years out. Right. Um, I can tell you, I don't, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I never thought I'd be an engineer. I don't even think I thought past 30. (laughs) Right. And I'm 38 now. So like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm having a blast with years I never considered. (laughs) Right. Um, But for me now it's, it's, it's kind of been in the last six years, like, okay, cool. I'm enjoying this people management aspect. This job's culture and environment allows me to grow and looks like the best opportunity for that. I'm going to go there. And then I'm going to come. And then while I was there, it was, oh, I'm now part of their uh, employee resource groups. I'm on one of the leadership panels there. I'm leading initiatives uh, that are outside of my current skill set and just kind of just making sure that I'm growing, I'm enjoying and I'm I'm learning. Um, so I, I think for me, my the the way I would phrase it for others is. You don't have to map out your entire journey, but just make sure that as you're taking your journey, that, you know, what you see in front of you is what you want to see in front of you. And if you get to a point where you hit a fork in the road or you hit a wall, it is very OK for you to pivot, change course and take another route. Um, and but do so because you want to and do so because ultimately it'll make you professionally and personally happy.
1: Yeah, kind of cool. like a being your own advocate, I guess, uh, keep being a steward of your own career and making sure that it's on the track that is working for you. Right. Um, and I, I wouldn't even like maybe even call it pivoting because that's, I I mean, it is pivoting, but like maybe like slamming on the brakes and doing a (laughs) U-turn in in the middle of the highway if you have to, um, tech is, is such a, a great field for the amount of opportunities there are for us as developers that, you really don't have to put up with much if you're not happy in your current role. So, um, you know, go out there and get the role that you want and that works for you. Um, you also talked a, a lot about leadership and not wanting that, uh, in the beginning. So like, where did that flip, uh, in your career? Like what, what was the transition that happened where you were like, yeah, this is what I want.
2: Yeah. I think in the beginning it was, I definitely had tension over the years with folks who were in leadership positions where um, I just kind of felt like, uh, I don't want the job of dealing with people. I kind of just want to build, leave me in a corner or I'll talk, you know, I'll talk with creative all day. I'll talk with my fellow devs all day. But if there's a project, just give me some tickets and leave me alone and I'll get them done. <laughs> right. Like I was this, I was that prototypal lock me in a basement with Mountain Dew and like Cheetos kind of developer.
1: <laughs> yes,
2: um, yes. But as my career grew, um, and also as I kind of gained more and more responsibility as a developer, I realized that, you know, the aspect of like, for instance, being a senior engineer of helping mentor the more junior engineers and talking with others to kind of figure out what our architecture is, it wasn't a chore for me. I actually enjoyed it. Like I liked building camaraderie. I liked building team. Uh, and then I think it was really when a mix between when I was at Newton in New York and when I went to Apple and was kind of like a team lead that I realized I actually enjoyed the challenge of building a successful team culture as an engineer more than I cared about having my name on this shiny feature that went out. Um, it cared a lot. It, It mattered a lot more for me to facilitate rather than be responsible for Um, I didn't have to be the person who's like, I didn't have to be the number one person next to the release notes. Um, and so with that, plus me starting to do a bit of volunteer teaching with uh, programs like citizen schools, I started to get this itch for, all right, I do want to kind of take everything I've learned and figure out where I can learn next, where I can grow next, but also help bring people with me. Um, and I kind of then morphed into what really, I think, has been kind of part of the mission for me whether I realized it or not, which is just. Um, allowing me to find opportunities to help others do what they do best or what they want to do best, um, and so that, that's what I think that switch really happened is like 2013, 2014, um, where I just realized, OK, yeah, that was great. I figured out this super crazy problem and delivered a site even after I slept in the office for like a week straight. <laughs> But I actually cared more that I onboarded the contractors we hired or I cared more that I helped redesign our interviewing process or I cared more that I was there helping us kind of clean up our architecture documentation program and like how we code reviewed and did uh, architectural review. And so that's kind of when I just realized, like, all right, I love code, but I like people, too, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a there's an element of empowerment there where you're like, you're enabling, you know, the people under you or the people around you to work better, smarter, and just, you know, enjoy life more. And that's like a really, it's a good feeling to have whenever you can achieve that. And you tend to want to chase that once you start to hit that. Um, I know Eddie and I can, can just say from like doing the podcast when people reach out to us and they're like, Oh my gosh, you really helped us. Um,
2: that that makes us,
1: that makes us feel really good. And Mm -hmm. um, it makes us want to keep doing what we're doing. Um, It makes you feel like you're making a difference. And, you know, you can kind of like, you can get a monkey off the street to like tap on a keyboard and write code, but there's a Mm -hmm. lot more to software development than just lines on the screen. There's, you know, meetings and there's planning and design and management that goes into that. There's a whole lot of human elements that go into that teamwork that, a lot of those things make the project fire on all cylinders more than just writing the code. So I think there's there's a lot of um, value in that type of work, even if you maybe don't see it. If you're like just learning to code, you're like so hyper focused on just the technical aspects of it. There's a lot more to it than that.
2: Yeah, and I think for me also is um, the more and more as I grew in my career that I came across managers who like quite literally told me in very certain terms that they didn't even want to be a manager anymore. Um, (laughs) yeah, that, you know, it was like, I started to realize that I cared about not having people go through that. And that for me, I just reached the stage where, um, yeah, I want to help empower us to grow and build and I want to do it at a different scale. Like I didn't have to be, I didn't have to have my hands in every single day to day moment. Uh, And it's been great for me, too, because it's helped me strengthen a lot of areas that I I think I didn't deliberately do so before because I was deliberately avoiding, (laughs) you know, uh, like supervisory management kind of roles for a while. Um, And it also just kind of naturally aligns with a lot, I think, of of my personality and what I enjoy outside of tech in general. Um, and, And just building that community and camaraderie and what I didn't have for chunks of my career as well. Um, So part of it is me enjoying being very selfless, but part of it is also me me very selfishly enjoying being able to be selfless. (laughs) Like uh, there's a it's an interesting loop when you get satisfied by doing stuff for others, but you also know you're doing that. To one, satisfy something you didn't have, also to satisfy something that you truly enjoy. So it's just great when you can marry that up and it's all for benefit of others and yourself. Yeah, hundred
1: mm-hmm. um, percent. So now that you're, you know, kind of establishing your, uh, not kind of, you are establishing <laughs> your career, and I've been doing this thing for a while. Uh, how do you stay up to date? Like, how do you, how do you keep yourself, you know, abreast of all the JavaScript environments? And it sounds like you've had experience with like Ruby and Python and Java and, and all these languages. Um, how do you keep up with all that?
2: Um, that that's the one thing for me is that. I love tinkering with things in my downtime. Um, I tend to use my personal website as the test bed and playground for um, a lot of like new tech I come across, which is a reason why for the longest time my site's always been down because it would get to like an (laughs) unfinished state. I would jokingly tell people that my site was only up if I was looking for a job. And the actual reality is my site was only up if I had time to finish it which usually did happen if I quit a job and was looking for a new job. But um, yeah, there's a bit of that. Um, I'm still uh, through like mentoring and and even like um, through teaching, um, just hearing a lot of what my students come across and what they talk about um, and me wanting to kind of give them newer ways to think about things helps. um, And just things like tech Twitter and all these communities that for a long time didn't exist makes it a lot easier for me to passively see something and then be very uh, um active in trying to learn about it um i probably should slow down a bit but i'd say the (laughs) the three things that i've been kind of playing with lately is flutter um for mobile dev um rust because uh you know i've uh, at work we have a platform that's built in golang and i saw some former golang developers uh, or folks who i knew that wrote uh, programs in, in Golang uh, kind of talk a lot about Rust and this notion of it being a very memory uh, safe language. So I was like, well, let me dive into what that actually means. And that took me to the website and I was like, oh, well, let me install this. i was like, all right, well, I did the little world. Let me see if I can build something. All right, cool. Let me build a little command line game. And next thing I know, it's like three in the morning and here I am trying to learn Rust. Um, so I still <laughs> have that like same tinkering glimmer of my eye when it comes to new tech that I had ever since the first time I might have ever come across code. Um, It is hard because tech moves at the speed of light. But I also get to kind of split that from my job in that, you know, in my day to day, my job isn't to necessarily empower us to build in all the newness. It's to build the best product, the most stable product and the most performant product. Um, So that allows me to say, well, this is what we've chosen to do today. This is how we're going to extract maximum developer happiness, but also client satisfaction. And then here I get to learn all this new stuff outside of the office. And maybe there's a way where we can kind of bring that in and make a cross section where I can start to bring that in of, of ideas that I've learned from that. Um, but it does make it a bit easier for me to say that one part of my life is like a fire hose for new tech information. And one is kind of a, a more structured fire hose for that information.
1: Cool. Uh, so... Cool. I just want to pump the brakes really quick because you've launched a whole bunch of uh, terms at, at the audience. So uh, (laughs) walking back a little bit, um, you talked a little bit about graph databases. Uh, So as I understand it, a graph database is like a bunch of nodes that you can like query and it's kind of um, everything's like connected or interconnected. Uh, Is that pretty close or how would you describe it?
2: Yeah, I would, I would describe it. um, I would describe it mostly to that. Um, the only thing I would add is that, yes, a graph database is a bunch of nodes that just have directional relationships, right? Um, so when we if we think about um, LinkedIn, for instance, right, and we have first, second and third degree friendships. If you said, OK, your first degree friendships are all strong, uh, strong kind of, of um, connections, right, strong relationships. And then like second degrees, maybe weaker but it's another hop down that's kind of the making of a graph if you will it's all about kind of nodes and their relationship to one another um you know if we've we've all played at some point some sort of game that had like involving like graph paper especially if you played like the little line game where you had to make squares if you go dot to dot um
1: yeah i will will take you in that game
2: (laughs) 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 now go on but like when you when you think about that game right if if you if you sit and think about it from a development context, a lot of those lines you're drawing to make your version of colored boxes versus your your opponents, you can start to also look at that in a way of a graph of all right, how did I traverse from this dot to this dot? <laughs> um, and so when you kind of read when you kind of reframe it that way, it makes the whole notion of a graph database much less daunting. Um, I will say that uh, my first actual foray into it was a good friend of mine lending me his grad school book. And that went as well as you think it would. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah. And, you know, if if we think about the different types of databases that we've we've messed with. Right. Um, So if if we talk about things like SQL, uh, we're really talking about kind of very um, columnar row by row data. Right. Um, Almost like a ledger style. If we think of NoSQL databases, a lot of them tend to either be um, not necessarily unstructured, which is what people kind of want to phrase it as, but more like your structure is defined by the data you put into it, not necessarily by the row and column structure. Right. Um, Then you could think of other things that are like key value based, like Redis and others, where it's like you have a key and that key has a value Um, in JavaScript. Objects are very much an example of that. and then you have your graph data store, which is more saying each data point is just a node, and how you relate to those is by drawing arrows, displaying what its relationship is to the nodes next to it. Um, so you can, if you wanted to give it like a a uh, a kind of snazzy like little name, I would, I probably would get killed by this by database purists, but it's kind of like relationship-driven data, right? Um, When we talk about relational databases, we relate that, but it's, you know, using columns from two different sources to like combine like your one ledger to another. And with graph databases, it's more like you have a node and you want to relate that node to another node where something may exist.
1: Yeah, cool. I kind of picture it in my head as like a spider web or maybe like a net or something, and where like the ropes cross, you could kind of think of that as like a node, and then traversing from like different points from there. Um, would you consider GraphQL to be a type of like graph database system?
2: Yeah, I mean, if if you think about how it tries to um, expose that data, right? It's it's all about um, defining certain schemas from your data and saying that your edges are based on like um, different amount of items in the schema that like um, like one is a user, like all user schema or something like that. And then your nodes are attached to those edges and that's each piece of content that you're pulling. Um, I think GraphQL in a way that a lot of us uh, use it, if we use like the end result of it, makes it a lot easier for us to approach graph um, database systems. Like we don't have to do a lot of the um, graph algorithms to kind of traverse the graph for us. I mean, we can kind of just make simple queries against that graph, which makes it nice, but definitely still qualifies. Um, I think the maybe the the difference there is that if if it's connected to another data source, it's kind of just like turning your data into a graph rather than being the graph outright.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. It's kind of like you know the in between um, system where it lets you do that awesome querying of like a graph database, but without, uh, all the heavy duty, like algorithmic math and stuff. Um, cool. So, uh, that was a, a really in-depth answer, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> how about some short answers for like Rust, Flutter and Golang? So I know Rust is like a, uh, a layer on top of like C or something like that, or it compiles down to C plus but, uh, you can kind of use it in the same way as that language.
2: Yeah, so Rust is like it's quickly becoming, I guess, a modern replacement for languages like C++ Um, and it's a compiled language and it runs pretty fast because it generates a binary. It doesn't. So everything it needs to run is built within the executable. Um, A lot of people are enjoying Rust because there's a lot of things behind the design that makes it so that you don't need a program to constantly clear out unused memory like empty variables or variables that you're no longer referencing. It like removes the need for that, which kind of makes it much quicker on cycles. That's as short as an answer I think I can give. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, Golang is really, uh, you know, uh, some folks at Google uh, wanted to create a modern C. (laughs) You might notice a a trend with these. Um, It's used a ton for creating um, like backend systems and low level scripts. It, too, does something where it takes everything it needs to run a program that you compile and puts it in executable. So you don't need like a Java runtime. You don't need to install some other stuff. You can just basically run the executable. You don't even need to really install Go to run a Go executable. Um, So pretty fun, pretty nice, pretty performant, known for being super fast. Um, And then Flutter, also another Google tech, uh, aims to (laughs) allow uh, cross-platform uh, mobile development, so think React Native, but in a but a different uh, framework essentially, um, and it also uses Dart, which is like an extension of JavaScript. Think of it like as Google's TypeScript, as the most that's probably the quickest way I can describe Dart.
1: Cool, yeah, okay. that's a that's a really interesting way. I've never heard it uh, described like that. Um, Real quick, uh, React Native or Flutter? Wh- which one? Ooh. Uh,
2: <laughs> right now, we'll go Flutter. I'm, I'm really Ooh, digging really? Flutter. Yeah. He's going for it. Uh, why Flutter over React Native? Um, I think Flutter thus far just allows, at least for me, a, a bit easier uh, way to actually talk between iOS and Android from one code base. Um, and React Native sometimes just has some quirks with that um also react native just wasn't as fun for me even though i love react as flutter is like react native just kind of made me feel like i was using react wrong it just my personal thing i'm not saying that react native is wrong it's just for me it was like yeah no i'm trying to do something that i don't think i really understand the frame of why i would want to do it that way where flutter it just kind of started to flow and make a bit better sense for me
1: cool okay how long did it take you to get up and running with flutter
2: uh literally like 10 minutes
1: Wow, that fast, like I
2: installed, <laughs> I looked at an example, and about 10 minutes later, I had an auto complete searchable application running on an Android uh, VM. Wow, cool,
1: cool. So, uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, <clears throat> we've talked about a whole bunch of tech. Obviously, you are uh, like living and breathing the stuff day in and day out. <laughs> uh, how do you balance that with your personal life? Um, do you have any hints or, or any like uh, hobbies or anything that are? non-technical that keep you grounded or give you that balance in life?
2: Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's important to have an escape from tech. Um, and I think that's important for, at least for me, for most things. It's like, um, I'd love to have friendships or, or situations where we can go out and not talk about a database or not talk about Flutter as much as I like <laughs> plan times when I can. Um, so I think one thing for me is that, you know, that I would say has worked well in my experience is just diversifying you know, the types of things I do socially. Um, so I'll go to tech meetups. I'll also do some social hikes. Um, I also like to get away from the computer, so I do a lot of, of like working out and, uh, and or walking. Um, and that also just keeps me active and kind of staves off some of the sedentary lifestyle. Um, so that's worked well. Um, I think also the balance for me is I keep all the tech out of my bedroom. My bedroom, the most technical thing in my bedroom is probably my watch charger. Um, It's important for me to not just mentally, but physically signal to myself that work is over Um, or that like this is a space for rest so that like I'm not sitting in my bed at three in the morning um, researching all this stuff, which is great. But, you know, sleep is important. Rest is important. And at some point you need to kind of give your brain the space to recover and rejuvenate and then come back to some challenges. Um, so for me, it's making sure that I have, a, I have spaces at home that are just not inundated with tech. Um, collecting sneakers allows me to spend less money on technology <laughs> because <laughs> money is still a on finite mind, resource. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's like, Snickers all right, sneakers or new S- or new SSD hard drive. I don't really need the hard Oof. drive, but these sneakers look awesome <laughs> and I will run in them. So I'm just going to get the sneakers. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, I enjoy lots of other things. Like I, I'm really big on nature photography. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of things that I, I really enjoy, one, get me away from the computer and two, get me away from technology. Um, it's like I'm half kind of low tech, half high tech which gives me that balance. But I, yeah, I just, I think at the end of the day, it's it's really find something outside of tech that you can enjoy and doesn't require you to go back to tech to enjoy it, right? Like photography, I mean, yeah, I could get the super most technical camera ever, but even if I just had a basic black and white 35 millimeter, it allows me to simply enjoy taking pictures. Hiking, same thing. Running, same thing. Um, you know, swimming, painting, writing, all these things that just kind of help you to unplug from whatever it is that you do with majority of your working hours.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I just yeah, want to say, there's
3: just for the people listening, there's a wall of sneakers right by him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a massive tribute to uh, sneaker collecting behind yeah. Jason right now.
2: Um, yeah, pretty awesome. I think I'm down to a hundred and five pairs. <laughs> Wow. Are, are there Yeezys over there? I have to know. No. Surprisingly, <laughs> I don't own a pair of Yeezys. I have very few pairs of Jordans. My favorite sneaker are uh, really? SB Dunks. I'm a huge oh, SB really? Dunk okay. fan. Um, one, those sneakers look awesome, even when they're broken down. So I don't have to feel guilty about wearing my sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two, they tend to be cheaper because uh, I'm, I'm not the biggest like, oh, go on this website and pay like a thousand dollars. Like, no, I I I, you know, yes, money is a tool, but $1,000 is just crazy for me. Um, (laughs) So, and I just like the way of the style. Um, It reminds me also a bit of like when I used to skateboard, it just kind of keeps, keeps me in my feels. Um, So yeah, between that and running sneakers, I'm I'm pretty covered.
1: Cool. Cool. So we typically do a a segment at the end um, of every show called Nerd Minute, where we just talk about stuff like we've been talking about (laughs) Uh, nerdy stuff that you're into could be books, games, uh, comics, shoes. Um, So uh, we know that you love sneakers. Uh, Is there anything um, else that you've been really into lately? Hmm.
2: Um, That's not code or sneaker related. I'm trying to think. (laughs) <laughs> we stumped him <laughs> folks <laughs> man yeah I'm, hmm. well actually one of my biggest things that I've been starting to nerd out on is um, uh, Harvard Business Review keeps releasing like a ton of these books which are like a collection of their essays on different topics um, and so I'm kind of like semi-addicted now to all the ones around managing others and managing yourself um, so every time I read a book I kind of go back on Amazon try and find another one Um, so like they have books on emotional intelligence, collection essays on the essentials, on leadership, change management, managing yourself, managing others, more managing yourself. Um, I'm really digging, like jumping into this specific genre and type of book, um, of just trying to develop different, what people kind of call soft, but for me, I call core skills, um, and just using them not only to be a better manager at the office, but just to be a better person. Like, how can I do these things to kind of help strengthen the areas I want to strengthen as a person, let alone as someone's boss?
1: I think I'm going to steal that from you and start calling soft skills core skills. <laughs> I, I will mail you a nickel every time I say it. <laughs>
2: that's cool. I will forward three cents of that to whoever I saw that uh, tweeted out for us today, earlier today. <laughs> now I don't feel so guilty. Um, <laughs> Again, this um, is the beauty of the web in twenty twenty. We learn by osmosis. Just it's all this is everywhere. But I, yeah, I saw it earlier, and I was just like, yeah, a soft skill isn't a soft skill. It's not. It's not to like, because that almost sounds kind of dismissive of some very important skills like you were talking about earlier, of communication. Right. Like those things are not yeah. soft. They're they're hard skills that are var- that matter a lot. So yeah, I think core skills is is a great phrase for it.
1: Yeah, it rolls off the tongue better than like non technical.
2: You know. <laughs> interpersonal uh, uh relationships management skills.
1: <laughs> ah, that's that's too fluffy. Core. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's very uh important sounding. Um, Eddie, what do you got for nerd minute? Um,
3: I don't have much. Um, I watched a stream, I think it was yesterday or the day before of someone playing um you heard of It's a the original Super Mario Brothers special? Yes. Yeah, okay. So it's on like a, it. a a some home Japanese computer that came out around that time. Um, okay. it, it's just very weird looking because, I mean, we're all used to that original game on the Nintendo. Um, so it's in like four different colors. The screen doesn't scroll. Um, so <laughs> after you hit, you, you don't even get to the end of the screen. You get close to it, then it flips to the next screen. And all the levels are kind of the same, they're kind of like remixes of the originals. And um the movements looks really weird. Um if there are more than three enemies on the screen, Mario moves differently. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really odd looking. Everything's yellow. Yeah, there's no white color in the screen. Everything that was white would be yellow, so the clouds are yellow. Um yeah, it's just really it was it was odd looking.
1: So are the uh, are the streamers that are streaming this entertaining while they're playing this game or
3: yeah, I, like I subscribed to Giant Bomb, which is like a video game. Okay, website. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there were, um, yeah, someone was playing it. Oh, what's his name? Uh, Jeff, yeah. Um, but he was playing, sometimes he, he plays a lot of old games. So I just thought cool. it was interesting because I've never seen or heard of it before. It's like one of those, you ever seen that uh, really old, uh, there's a Zelda that was on a like, different system that wasn't made by Nintendo. Oh, yeah, I think um, it was like a though. CDI or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. That thing is really, really bad looking. <laughs> 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 it has like these because it was one CDs. Games were popular at the time uh, when they first came out. They all had like really bad animation. Um, so, yeah, that game has really crappy animation and it doesn't look anything <laughs> like a Nintendo version of a Zelda game. It's 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 pretty bad.
2: Fantastic There's
3: streams of that out there, too. They're that pretty. Cool. That's amazing
1: yeah i used to watch a giant bomb years ago for their um like their first look videos because you get a really Mm -hmm. good idea of how good a game is going to be watching those guys just like play it for 10 minutes and rip it up so yeah uh uh, i may have to check out giant bomb uh again it's it's good as for me (laughs) as for me uh i've been watching the outsider on hbo Mm. um it is a Stephen this King a, book oh, okay. that was adapted to television, uh, and it's it's been pretty awesome. It's got uh, a detective that is played by the actor that was like the evil brother in Bloodline on Netflix. If you watch that, um, <clears throat> Jason Bateman uh, played a role in it. Was okay. was pretty good. Um, you it's said basically this on about, Netflix. No, it's on HBO. Oh,
3: Okay,
1: so. Um, It's about a, it's like a mystery supernatural kind of thing where this guy gets basically framed for murder and the cops end up finding evidence of him being in two places at once and like eyewitnesses of both and like DNA evidence of him being in two places at once. And then it kind of goes off the rails from there into like supernatural, like doppelganger kind of monster boogeyman type of thing. But uh, the acting has been really awesome. And uh, I don't know, I've, I've just enjoyed it. It's been really good so far. That's cool.
3: That's
0: awesome. I,
1: so, I heard of this,
3: but when I I thought it was because there's an outsider on Netflix. That's a movie with Jared Leto. Uh, no, I right. think this it's called it? No, No. That's what I was thinking when you said not outsider. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like a. I think it takes place in Jap in Japan, uh, which oh, is yeah, why yeah, yeah. I brought it up. Yeah. So
1: that is that's like a yakuza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Series that I haven't watched that. Okay. Uh, this one is a Stephen King jam, if you will. <laughs> it's okay, that sounds very cool. very much in line with some of his previous stuff.
2: Yeah, Edwin, your um, your talk of Mario just reminded me of something I kind of mini nerded out on today, which is um, okay. so this, there's like a small speedrunning community that yeah. speedrunning getting how fast they can get super mario to in super mario odyssey for the switch how fast they can get to affording to give him his bathing suit costume oh really (laughs) yeah
1: that's a very niche community yeah
2: um so i guess apparently someone was like yeah this is like this is how long it took me to get to the point where i could um kind of get him in his like america themed like swim trunks and he's like basically (laughs) looks like he's ready for the beach like all he has on the trunks (laughs) <laughs> um, and like, it's become a thing and like the first run, I guess was at 24 minutes and someone I saw earlier today did it in under 10 and was like super ecstatic about it. And I was just like, huh, we will speed run <laughs> anything. This is amazing. Yeah. I, I can, I can get behind that.
3: Yeah. Um, I, uh, is it tool assisted or is just like, no, this was uh, just straight up. Just like actually,
2: okay. Yeah. They like found different parts of the game where they could try to quickly amass a thousand coins then warp back to the main plot place where you could buy that costume. It's, it's, okay. qu- it's quite interesting. That's cool.
1: Speaking of that, um, weird Nintendo, uh, factoid there. I saw on Kotaku something today that like really hit me in the feels. Uh, so like I, I don't feel imposter syndrome as much as I used to, uh, now that I'm like in the industry and working and stuff. But today I saw somebody that they built uh, Metroid fusion for the Game Boy Advance. Mm-hmm. in Minecraft. Oh wow. Like 100% like you're watching a screencast that is the game Metroid Fusion, but he zooms out and it's like a floating screen in Minecraft running uh Metroid Fusion with like redstone and stuff.
2: That's,
1: That's wild. I was like that guy better programmer than me. <laughs> 100%. You win. <laughs> You win the game, my friend.
2: And <laughs> now cool. I've got new things to go rabbit hole down.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll link that to you if you're interested. Wow. Cool. cool. So uh, I think we can wrap it up there. <laughs> uh, Jason, thanks so, so much for coming on the show. Where yeah, can uh, Work in the audience, find you online and on Twitter and stuff.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, on Twitter, I am at underscore JJ Phillips, P-H. Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm Jason, J-A-Y-S-O-N-J-P. Uh, and generally, that's where you can find me. Uh, Instagram, I'll post pictures of food or sneakers or running. It's kind of the three things I post the most. Uh, and it's uh, J.Phils, P-H-I-L-O-Z, which is, that was my DJ name. Jason Phillips, J J.Phils. Kind of works. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Is there a SoundCloud or something we can listen to your jams? Uh, no, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I don't have a SoundCloud. (laughs) I, I kind of, I I would, by the time I stopped doing regular gigs, uh, SoundCloud still hadn't been out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, gotcha. Oh man, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Cool. So, uh, yeah, we will, we will see you around. Thanks again for coming on.
2: I appreciate you having me.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Please head over to our website at techjunior.dev for show notes of past episodes. While you're there, please sign up for our newsletter. Um, it goes out once a week with the latest episode and other goodies that we think you guys would like. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Special thanks to all our current patrons. And uh, we also have a Teespring store with T-shirts and stickers designed by Lee and I. Um, you can find links to both these things at our on our website at TechJunior.dev under support. Um, please follow us on Twitter at tech junior Podcast. Um, you can also follow our personal accounts. Uh, Lee is at Lee Warwick Junior. I am at Ed Otero. The O's are zeros. Bye. Stay safe and see you next week.